Welcome to the Mike Don't Watch Podcast. I am your host, Mike Fearman. I'm here with my friend and trusty producer, as always, Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Not much. Max, this is a special actually, episode. Actually, a lot of stuff's going on right yeah, now. Yeah, it's all happening. I'm actually very busy today. <laughs> it's true. We're uh, actually right now at a studio uh, that Max is recording a secret track, maybe not so secret, maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, we're not alone, Max. Nope. Why don't you tell the people what's going on as our producer? We have our friend, our new friend, Christine Flaherty. How do you say that <laughs> you name? You kind of had an Irish jilt. Flaherty. Here, which Irish which jilt. I like. Um, uh, I say I say Flaherty. Flaherty. That, that makes like some people say Flaherty. Flaherty. Like kind of really get the hit the H. Otherwise known to the world as K Flay, the recording artist. Who, That's how you all know her who are listening. Yeah. Well, my, if, uh, my family's probably listening, so they know me as Christine. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and we, uh, normally we don't have our feature guest. And by the way, you're going to be the feature guest on the show. So featured. Okay. Uh, normally you. we don't have you in the open, but Mike was like, no, Christine is doing the whole damn show with we us. Should be, She's so damn we cool. We kind of already, we talked about this. Let's we set it up. already did this podcast IRL at a bar I, like the last week <laughs> last week we're gonna try not to repeat too many questions no no no. it's good but it feels like I would be offended and hurt if I weren't part of the open well ah. there well you know uh, she does have a good podcast pedigree because the that was like literally because uh, the first time we ever met was literally at this pub a week ago yeah mm-hmm. and you know when you're meeting someone you you, you come in you give us a hug you very smile you're very warm but you there's still that period of time in the first half an hour that you're like, all right, what are we going to talk about? You're feeling each other out. You're feeling each other out. Mike, we talked about podcasts and we talked about everything books, but then after about an hour, we started getting in our personal stories Yeah, and then that's what happens after like five gin and sodas. (laughs) (laughs) But then by the end of the night, we're like, we are, I think we're best friends. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially we might as well set it up. So, uh, Max, you're like, Oh, there's like sort of like a mutual friend. She's on tour with, uh, mother, mother. Um, what are you doing tonight? I was like, well, I was just, I'm staying in the city. I was in Toronto. I was like, I'm just going to, uh, probably like watch the Raptors game at a bar. And you're like, why don't we meet up? With my friend, I'm like, okay, cool. I guess you guys had texted a bit because you guys had yes, never met each we other had in never person. Met, never met face to face, which is such a, 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 a like. I'll get to that. Too. We did a classic, which not to derail this intro. We did one of my favorite things that the internet facilitates yeah. and allows, which is a a Twitter scenario where you go from tweet, reply, follow, DM, text. <laughs> IRL. And I kid you not. <laughs> that was good. That was very good. This has brought me like meaningful, lasting friendships over the last few years because there's never been a platform like this where like unless in the old days you were at a festival or like you randomly ran into another artist at the studio, you just wouldn't know them. No. But you know what's funny is that it's funny that you have these relationships already because Ashley, who is kind of our mutual mm-hmm. friend, um, I, I said to her, and Ashley's our manager, uh, I said, oh, I really like that K-Flay song that's on uh, the radio. I hear it all the time. It's like really cool. And then she said, oh, yeah, K-Flay and Lights are friends. They toured together. She, she's super nice. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then Ashley said, you should tweet at her. Just tell her you like the song. And I was like, well, yeah, I probably should do that. And, but the reason why I never did that in the past is that I, I feel like, I think a lot of people have this assumption that the person's not going to get back to you and you might have this feeling of being rejected. And I'm not a person that takes that kind of stuff personally at all, but I still just never went went out of my way to do something like that. Well, but then, sometimes there's like a connotation that it's uncool to like reach out or well, show that it. you're a fan or you're into something. Or that you're you know? extra earnest. But then when you got back and you, it was so gratifying to me and rewarding, they're like, oh, the internet works sometimes and you yeah. can have a nice little correspondence. So 
then we kind of had our schedules align in Toronto. And uh, and our schedules are about to align 100% in L.A., which I know we right. talked about. But I'm going to see you guys when you're playing. And you're playing down the street from my house. Right around the corner. So, you know, I have to say, like, there are times when the Internet gives me, and I think all of us, like, you know, this incredible sense of just psychic terror and, like, it's the only reason I don't want to have a kid is basically because <laughs> of the internet. I'm not even kidding you. No, and, and climate change, probably. And climate change. Yeah, no. um, There's a lot going on right now that maybe could be deterrent totally. to bringing children into the world. But I'm almost like, I'm putting like Trump and everything in with the internet. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Like I'm it's kind of, of internet I don't know exactly how I'm defining it, but I'm say, I'm calling it the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I guess this is all to say that for hilarious photos and for these types of like friendships, yeah. the internet's actually like it's a kind of a beautiful thing. Oh yeah, it's a, yeah. Which it I know beautiful. people know this, but and now the re- the other reason why you, she's on the pod is that she revealed to us at about midnight on that fateful what day of the week was it? It was a Wednesday. Wednesday. She said, "Guys." What should I do? I don't want to drive all the way to Winnipeg, <laughs> but if I can, if I can convince the label that I need to be in Toronto for an extra day while the band drives to Winnipeg, yeah, I can buy myself a cheap flight to Winnipeg, and Max. it'll spare me the thirty hours in a van, and it'll just be a breezy two-hour flight. You're just laying it all on the table, and then I said, "We're booking you on Monday," <laughs> <laughs> which is true. I hope. I hope the band isn't listening. <laughs> our, our podcast is not that popular. I think they're so pretty okay. bored of me in general. You know what I mean? Like, it's like no one, aside from like my sister will definitely be listening to this. My mom and my stepdad. Those are the ones I can guarantee. Other than that, I don't know if anyone who knows me personally is like at all interested in hearing me speak in a public forum. That's kind of the way I feel about, so we have this crew of friends. Uh, we refer to ourselves as the Champagne Boys. Not seriously. Are these the people you were telling me about? Like Yeah, the, the kind of morons. Dan yeah, and all those, Shane or something? Yeah, you remember right? Wow, you're impressive. Yeah. Shane's actually on this pod. So, ah. so he's not here with us, but when you listen back okay. when this episode goes live... After we're done talking, there'll be a segment where he comes on and probably talks about okay. The Bachelor or okay. not being able to go to the bathroom properly. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he's it's, it's an ongoing segment with him. Thing. Yeah, it's going on with him. But uh, anyway, I feel the same way about those guys is that even though just maybe some people in Hamilton or in Canada, like what I say has meaning <laughs> right. to my friends, they're like, I am just a moron <laughs> for the most part. I mean, a lovable idiot. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah. But, but that's important. That's oh, that's why I hang out with them. If they if they put me on any pedestal, I'd I'd be out. So yeah, I think well, that's always I I've always kind of felt that unless you had some sort of really really horrific childhood, in which case like you have every right to eschew like all members of your past life and just like start again. Mm. I'm always kind of freaked out by people that I meet who don't have long term relationships that's an interesting thought with friends and family because i find i find that there's no accountability or there's no guarantee of accountability like if you've managed to have the same friend for 25 years right or 20 years or 15 okay you can't be that bad it says something about you that you can maintain these relationships for a long time that's true you haven't screwed people over you haven't alienated friends you haven't had falling outs i think in a large sort of uh number it's true i mean I i would you say like People that have large groups of friends or just even one lifelong friend, it's like sort of a a testament to their character. Totally. And I think, I mean, some people obviously, some people like to have these big social networks, you know, and lots of contact. Some people just want to have like one or two friends. But one of my mom's best friend's dad 
said to them when they were kids, and then my mom always said to me, if you can count on one hand the number of true friends you have, you're lucky. So yep. I consider if you got like even just two people you can count on in this world. Yeah, it's pretty lucky. One of my really good friends growing up, his mom uh, said to him once that I think we were probably in like middle school or something. And she was like, look around at your group of friends. She was like, none of them will be at your funeral. Like it's a, it's, it's a depressing thought. But I think what she was saying was basically like. You know, this time when you're a kid, it changes when you get older. Oh, wow. That was like the kind of the opposite message. That <laughs> 100%. No, it's terrible. I'd be very depressed. That would terrify me as a child. That's, that's a, that is a dark piece of wisdom. Yeah. Though, I will say, the great lesson of, I think, growing up, and this continues throughout your whole life, so this is not like it doesn't end when you're 20 or something, but is that having having an understanding of how the passage of time truly does smooth the jagged edges of a life. I totally agree with that. You know what I mean? Like, it's speaking to, I think, maybe in a less frightening way than this (laughs) mom said it. Like, the drama of seventh grade, right? Which feels like it's life or death when you're 12. I totally agree. Yeah, it's like, step back for a second. But when you're a kid, you don't even, you you haven't been alive long enough to even understand. All right, well, this is actually a good segue, because the one thing I want to talk about in the open, and because I have to get back into the studio in a minute, because the band is actually recording stuff right now. But um, is this idea of, because we've all made music, uh, and you you have a record coming out. By the time this podcast comes out, it will be out. (gasps) I want to talk about experiences in the studio, because to that point, you can get in the craziest dumb arguments over like a kick drum like, yeah. placement yeah. in like one part of the verse and then and then you have it in like a philosophical conversation for like 45 minutes about like well really the thing is that it, it kind of has a phil collins connotation to it <laughs> well and then really it's like if you just put a clap over top of that snare no one cares anymore um so i want to know what how was recording this new record and it's not to jump the oh, gun on no, 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 it's a good question. Maybe, and, record, and I say this as someone who's a little stressed out right now because I'm recording with the guys right now. And her, her record's called Everywhere is Somewhere, mm-hmm. coming out April 7th. Exactly. That's correct. And the song that Max talked about that he loves so much is called Blood in the Cut. That's right. Which, yes. if you haven't heard it, I'm sure you have. It's bloody well everywhere. On the it appears okay, on, good, the, on good. the record. And it's everywhere. And it's around, especially yeah. in Canada. It's, oh, yeah. Canadians. Canadians, love it. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of my next album. Canadians, okay. thank um, you. <laughs> it's a political record. No, but. Actually, what you're saying, I think, is really does resonate because I I, I feel like for me, and it's a little different because I'm not in a band, and I feel like I talk to my friends in bands, and those, because ultimately, I just kind of am like, this is what I want. Yeah. In a very, it's called like, K-Flay. It's called Clay Flaherty, <laughs> I think is how you pronounce exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think with this new record, and actually part of the reason it went so smoothly, was that I stopped... I actually kind of stopped worrying about some of that and my whole focus became the spirit in which it was recorded. Uh, what so does that less mean? about like specific tones because I've struggled uh, and we well, we can maybe talk about this later but about like I started out rapping and in that complete world and I've been shifting like forever undulating uh, ad, word? ad nauseum. Undulating? Yeah, it's undulating. like like the, the ocean undulates. Oh, the yeah. waves cool. go back and Learning forth. something new, yeah. guys. Yeah. This is good. So, and I think I was having questions, maybe not about a kick or snare tone, but about like, should I be rapping? Should I be singing? Should there be a guitar? Should there not be a guitar? Like, why am I doing this? This is wrong. This guy says it's right. I should do this. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And on this last record, it was just like, 
like for for blend the cut that i start it started as a riff so i was like well that's rock song then fine let's go yeah oh interesting. you know what i mean instead of like well should i like do a weird like rap thing or should it be like it kind of like the way i felt at the beginning of writing it i just followed that totally you know um one of the things because i hate like de- like the detaily part of the recording process but if you can be a person that zooms out and just like is does the spirit work does does the spirit of the song make people feel good like does it move someone uh in a way and it's hard and it's very easy when you're in the minutia of each little part to go down the rabbit hole and and to get really stressed out but if you can zoom out and just say oh no no this either feels good or doesn't feel good one or the other yeah and that's why I'm actually like, there's some bass being tracked right now. I'm like, I don't even want to be there because I'm just going to lose my mind. But I can go in in a half an hour and just go, oh, that feels good. Or eh, maybe there's a couple of things I tweak. Yeah. But I, but if I'm there and I'm like looking at each little note that's being played, I lose perspective. But, well, think about as a final note to that, what may, helped me like adopt this perspective is when I think about my favorite records, it never has anything to do pretty much with ha- like, quote unquote, how it sounds. It's just like how it makes me feel. Yeah. And that's sort of, I was trying to like use that as, as my like north on the compass. Well, I was, um, I don't know if I referenced this in the last podcast, but uh, there's a great interview with Max Martin, who I'm sure you know. I know Max. Not personally, no. sorry. But <laughs> it sounds like he's my friend, my cousin, oh, Max. Yeah. My oh, cousin Max. Max Martin. <laughs> and uh, for our listeners, he's written every, like basically 50% of the pop hits that you've, that you've heard from 1998 to today. Yeah. He's credited with producing or co-writing. And when he shows a person a new song, he's just looking at their body. It's like, did they check their phone by the time the second verse got there? Like, how how are they viscerally reacting to it? And I thought that was a really interesting... Because at the end of the day, like, that's like how people viscerally react to it. Is what wow. Mike, when you were in a band, because uh, Mike was in a band with his brother and another set of brothers, did, what, do you have any particularly uh, turbulent or sweet recording session memories? Well, you know, as the singer, Max, you kind of just hang, you, you like, there's a lot of waiting around, but I think when I was in a band and it was a real thing and, you know, we had a record doing, we were touring and all that. I don't know if I was too stressed out. I cared too much about the details. I, I like, I would be the guy that would annoy everybody by getting in a 50 minute conversation over like a, a guitar note or like, do we need that drums or why are you putting an effect on my voice? It doesn't feel authentic. I think I might have been too neurotic to like uh. sort of hang at a high level because I take everything so, uh, it would be so heavy for me because it, it all matters so much. But this kind of goes back to the point you said that, you know, um, about being in middle school and something seeming like the end of the world. And then once you become an adult, you just realize that so many things don't matter anymore. Actually, there's a great quote that's like, you know, when you become an adult, uh, you have more problems than you did when you were a kid. It's just you're so much better at dealing with them that yeah. it doesn't feel like that. Because yeah. you have the tools to sort of handle everything that are things that come your way. I think if we had done like a second and a third album and gone on, I think I would have settled in. But that first record and sort of the stress of like the literally first time is the hardest. Yeah. How did you take because uh, Mike's brother is my roommate and right. Right, right, right. and Greg, how would you describe Greg as like a personality type? Like a little general. <laughs> he's yeah, a little asshole general. Um, <laughs> oh, OK, he's opinionated. He's opinionated, but also has like kind of like cool guy taste. He's got great taste. He's That's got a great thing. taste. But he but, knows it. That's the right, problem. Right. Yeah, he's like, and he's kind of pretentious about it. Totally. How did you take to any uh, Greg's criticisms? Because I was pretty, because I didn't really know what to think in those times, I leaned a lot like on Greg and Sean, you know, because I think that they both had a cool kind of perspective. Yeah. 
but I was also like, you know, deep in the weeds with like lyrics and what do I want to say. And I don't know if I want to say that and all of the things that like people go through. And I think, you know, for my brother, Greggy, Greggy's a good one. Yeah. Interesting. I could see him being condescending. <laughs> I, well, now I feel like you're maybe trying to get some dirt. I wanted a good story. You, I asked, give me a good turbulent yeah. story. Oh, well, you know, I, I ain't throwing anyone under the bus, Max. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's yeah. Right. Just my band. Yeah, no, yeah just I, me. I know. You just can, me, actually. You sold her out the minute she it's sat okay. down. I, I honestly believe. <laughs> that's a good story, though. It it's, better to, it's better to tell the truth. Yeah. Like, that's just, sure. it's very complicated, incredibly stressful. I find, as, and I was texting you this on the way over, and you said, Save it for the pod. Oh, yeah. Now I am saving it for the pod, which is I was five minutes late to this. Uh-huh. That's true. Um, because I was having an Uber pro- problem. Uh, what happened? Well, I mean, it's a classic thing where like it's like one minute away, so I raced downstairs, and then the dude's like turning the wrong way, and I don't know Toronto really, okay. so I don't even I know in my mind it's go- it's going wrong, but I can't be like, well, that's a one way street because I know this street. So anyway, he was kind of like circling around, and then we talked, but he. He did like I couldn't really understand him. I don't th- think English was his first language, and it was like really noisy and windy. And there Snowstorm was too. honestly a flow rider song in the background, <laughs> which is um, gonna blow my whistle, baby. Whistle. You know that song? Oh, it's so horrible. It's about, I don't well, know. Uh, I can imagine what it's about. You can imagine what it's about. <laughs> I'm like, how is this on the radio? This is so inappropriate. But like little girls are singing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but as I said, I was gonna be five minutes late, and you said, no worries. And yeah. I said, but I'm worrying all the time. Yeah. In all caps, you wrote it as well. And it's true. Yeah. I'm very worried. And I'm so worried that lying is not feasible because it would just add to the pile of worries. Uh, the worries, yeah. Yeah. And it's more work because you got to remember what you lied about. That's what I mean. <laughs> lying is so stressful. Yeah. Okay, I have to okay, go back yeah, to the studio. We're going to hit that intro music. <gasps> oh, is that what we're going to do? And then we're going to get to the feature chat with K-Flight. Let's do it. All right, so I feel like this is a very like experimental episode for us because we've never had a guest off the top. So okay. thanks for coming and doing that. Of course. I mean, for me, this could be business as usual. Like, isn't it weird when you're in a pattern and somebody else doesn't know your pattern? Yes, I get what you're saying. So you're saying like you would normally come in, hang out, be, do a radio yeah. show. But for us, it's kind of a weird rhythm thing. Mm-hmm. But you're like, you're just, I'm just rolling. This, this is the rhythm. It's the only rhythm I know. Yeah. <laughs> rhythm Nation. Janet Jackson. <laughs> So you keep doing word association. Scream, which is interestingly, someone was pointing out to me, a song about political disenfranchisement. It's very science fictiony video though. They're in like a spaceship, yes, and at one point they're playing that. tennis. I think. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, um, kind of reminds me in a way, at least in my mind, of that Jamiroquai video. Yeah, which is a great video as well. Also, great song. Great song. So, as we were saying off the top, this song, Blood in the Cut, is doing extremely well. You have this new album coming out. Mm-hmm. I guess overall. Is Blood in the Cut sort of the, the biggest song you've had to this point? Definitely. Um, I mean, it's the only song really I've ever had on the radio. When that's happening, when things are like kind of like moving in a way that maybe they hadn't before, what's different about the process? Or is it just kind of like, shit, I'm just, I'm gotta, I just go with the ride because you don't know any different? Um, well, you know, I think if this were happening to me right when I began my career, I would be pretty overwhelmed and like maybe trying to change my ways hmm. to adapt. Um, but because I've been, I've like, I was on a major label, left, put started my own label, put out a record on that. Now, again, I'm on a major label and there've been so many kind of changes and like, 
I guess, like, such insane, like, hopes for the future and such demoralizing, crushing developments that at this point I'm, like, just kind of unfazed in a good way by mm. anything. So if thing, good things happen, I'm like, okay, we got more radio to do, maybe less sleep and more interviews and stuff like that. But I'm not, I'm not letting it, like, consume any part of me. You know, whereas I felt like when I was at the beginning, things would consume me. Right. You know, like almost like the, the joy you would feel because something's doing well or maybe disappointment because something doesn't go as well. It's like there's perspective now or you're just more even when it comes to that. I think it's both. Right. I think, well, I guess part of the perspective thing, too, is that, you know, I've realized that so much of the happiness I derive from making music is about the actual making of it and then the performing of it and not necessarily so much the other stuff, which is can be really fun and nice but like that initial joy after you make a song and then getting to play it live and sort of reenact that those are i think those are the times i feel really happy and those in some ways are divorced from like radio play or obviously there's more people at the show if your song's on the radio yeah which is good we uh you were nice enough and kind enough to invite max and i to the show at hamilton place with mother mother thank you for coming by the way thanks for having us uh great show and it's interesting you know, when you do those tours, you never know what you're sort of going to get, like with the Mother Mother crowd. But it's like, I, th- I feel like people were like lit. I feel like they were standing up in a seated theater. What were you feeling from that show in particular? Well, it's coming. So uh, the first, I guess, most of this year up until this Mother Mother tour, I've been on a headline run yeah. in the U.S., which, you know, you kind of get into that pattern where like, almost everyone at the show like is there for you absolutely and especially for me in the u.s i have like a pretty devoted like people who've been watching me play for like four years five years um and there's that like passionate knowledge of lyric and you know that that comes with those kinds of shows and then transitioning to opening up at these like and we've been playing at like beautiful venues you know like I was saying the first night we did Ottawa at the like National Art Center and it was so pretty. I was like, we're not, we shouldn't be here. We're like, <laughs> we're, we're like sewer rats. Why did they invite us? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, think, I think, which is all to say like for a headline show, a lot of the energy work you don't have to do, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because there's so much coming off the crowd when you're opening much more like of the energy creation and work has to happen inside of you. And I think it's really good to remember that. So I just, and I feel like crowds can sense that. Like when you're passionate about what you do, even if they don't love what you do necessarily, or they do love it, I think they respond to that. I mean, I go to a lot of live shows and I feel like that's the main thing I notice. Your lyrics in general, uh, you know, feel very autobiographical, you know, especially based on our hang the other night. I guess what I always wonder is when you're writing lyrics, do you ever feel like, would you ever cut a lyric because it's about somebody specific because you don't want to hurt that person? Or are you an artist that says, no, 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 like I can't filter it because that's sort of, you know, the essence of the art. I think the answer lies somewhere in between. I I don't think I would ever not say something, but I might add a detail or subtract a detail to obscure somebody's identity. Hmm. I guess is what I would say. Sort of like, you know, in a, like an article, a news article where they're like protecting a, 
a source. Sure. That's kind of how I... <laughs> right. So, uh, like, not changing any of the information, but maybe changing some of the identifying things. Although, that being said, most of the bad stuff is about me. So, it's like, I'm really impugning myself. Sure. It's no, more like self-reflective or you yeah. speaking out to your own qualities, I yeah. guess. And I'm usually... It's like, you know, I think most of the songs tend to be about like my own doubt, my own regret, my own confusion. And it's a lot easier to to talk about yourself in that way um, as opposed to, yeah, sort of indicting other people for yeah. the most part. But yeah, I don't think I've ever like, I think, you know, I put out a mixtape called West Ghost when I was living in New York. Um, it was like kind of like super dark. And I think a lot of people thought I was like on drugs and all this stuff, which I wasn't, although I was in a dark place. And I remember my brother was like, dude, like, are you okay? And I was right. like, yeah, I am okay. And then I kind of had to talk to like my close friends and family and be like, be like, this is, I'm talking about like the dark stuff because I don't really feel compelled to be like, woke up like eight bounce meal, you know, worked out. That's not, yeah. No one wants to hear that song. Right. And I don't want to write it either. It's like you're letting your sort of friends and family know it's like, this isn't a cry for help. It's just me expressing myself. Exactly. In some ways though, is, is art or songwriting that? I mean, well, that's an interesting question. I feel like when I'm writing, everything is true, but it's like not true all the time. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. Um, and I think maybe answering the question about like, what is writing a song in the first place? Because I think about this. I just feel like it's the same as making a table or like. I don't know. I, I can't really make anything aside from a song. That's the thing. Like if I could build a car, I probably would. I just don't know how. But the joy of like taking an experience that's completely inside your mind and then making a physical thing is pretty like soul affirming. Sure. So for me, at least that's kind of the impetus going back how did you get into music like i mean is it something where you had bands in high school did you always have an inclination to perform no to both questions i fell into music really uh unexpectedly when i was in college and wow i had you touched an instrument before college i had touched a guitar and i knew how to play uh, let's say like passable like i could play bar chords okay but that was like the extent, you know, and I knew I knew a bit about what was happening. I played the trumpet for two years in fifth and sixth grade, I guess. Okay. And I was I was actually pretty good. at. I like trumpet. Like school band sort of thing. Exactly. But yeah. I got braces oh. and trying to play the trumpet when you have braces is you like shred your mouth. It's like a really painful, sad experience. Aww. So those are the two instruments I had touched and played. Which sounded kind of gross the way I said <laughs> yeah, it's like a Florida song. <laughs> I know, God. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, but it was just never a part of my life. And even as a listener, I listened to music, but it wasn't like part of my emotional experience as a teenager. Like, and you know, teenagers, like you know, we, we all have friends that were like, music. It was their life. Totally. Like, Did you get this new record? And I'm going to this show and all that. Yeah. That wasn't you. No, or people fe feeling like, and I feel this way now, so it's sort of funny. Again, getting back to the late bloomer thing. You know, when you're a kid, you're a misunderstood kid. You feel alienated, and only this person or this song is like, that's you. You know, that's the person who understands you. Yeah. I never had that feeling. And 
then I moved to California for school and was kind of inundated with lots of new music immediately, especially indie rap and kind of like weird rap, left of center, strange rap. Because like the Bay Area has this, has its own very, very specific musical ecosystem, Mm -hmm. especially with rap. Um, Now, uh, school, this is when you went to Stanford, right? This is Stanford. So this is university. Okay, cool. Even that, see, like that's a, it's a pretty impressive school. What's the process of getting in there? Was that like a dream school or was that, it just happened? Well, I was a very serious student. Like I was cut out for school. Yeah. Because I know a lot of people, especially now having done music for a while, who are very, very smart people. Like some, probably some of the most like astute, worldly, curious people I've ever met who disliked school. Like immensely did had not, difficulty with it they weren't good at being students they weren't studious totally or didn't like the structure didn't like being told what to study any of that whereas i was like thrilled to have routine and consistency and rules and guidelines and i actually spent arguably the first like 23 years of my life pretty lockstep in a regimen of like i spent eight years drinking only water and orange juice i didn't drink pop i didn't drink alcohol i didn't drink like including my college years that's great that's insane it's definitely extraordinary you know in a lot of ways it's just you're not having the same sort of teen experience that most people are having in north america right did your friends find it weird i think my friends figured out pretty early on that i was like marching to my own drum gotcha and we're cool with that and Like accepted me and just sort of knew like, oh, Christine's like doing this thing, like whatever. We talked a bit about it the other night and like just even the the whole like not drinking for a very long time Mm -hmm. and sort of staying out of it. Was it, did you think that you kind of had like, like, because sometimes just being different is its own kind of thrill or, you know, it's a way to sort of stand out or be an individual. Was was it that or was it, was it like, I don't want to alter myself because I'm nervous about the results? I think, I mean... Its origin at the outset is was my dad's own drinking. And I think just from a... Because my mom was super upfront with me um, about my dad having drinking drug problems when I was really little, when they split up when I was six. So I kind of knew from a very small age, okay, this is like alcohol does this to people and I don't like this thing that it does to people. And it like ruined a bunch of things and now my dad like lost his job and now my dad and then my dad died and so it just kind of like was part of this um logical web of like all leading to bad right and my mom and my stepdad kind of in i guess in response to to my dad they didn't drink at all so i had these two house experiences wow, interesting like they no glass of wine no. never not just around the kids no. but at all it was not a part of their lives no not at all interesting and so i had these like this very dichotomous view of drinking and drugs which was like at least with the the kind of adult figures i was looking up to it's like people who don't have it together and are kind of screwing up and are kind of like bad in a certain way do this people who are good and responsible and who take care of me and I can rely on always, like, don't do this. So I think early on that was imprinted in me. And then, and then it was one of those things where like, people just knew that I didn't drink. And I think you're right. There is something, 
it made me different. And it was this special thing about me. And I, and I definitely, I definitely had that like sort of air of superiority a little bit, (laughs) you know, which I can like, I look back on and just kind of shake my head, but especially when you're like a teenager and you're just like, whatever your higher ground is and you're on it, you know, like whether it's music, like, well, I listen to this, like, oh, you know, I think for me, I found that place in being totally sober. Right. Which I think, I think essentially my entire twenties was about embracing gray area, which has probably been the hardest thing in my whole life. The gray area meaning like the stuff that you wouldn't go near as a teenager. And then the twenties was about about everything like instead of saying like well this thing is good and this thing is bad uh got you nothing was for sure anymore exactly or like well i wake up at nine and i do this i like you know having these i was so um and i think too when you're a kid who has like some level of chaos in childhood i found that just anecdotally a lot of people gravitate to that you know like looking for control and looking for structure yeah and the really like this the latter two-thirds of my twenties was all breaking down those structures and touring was a huge part of that. I mean, making music, it's like, how, how can you, there is no real structure. It's all free form. You know, it's like, it's all improv in some ways. So you go to Stanford, Mm -hmm. you start listening to music. This is when music becomes a thing in your life. Yes. How does that happen? That happens because, well, about half of the student population at Stanford is from California. So it's a very California school. I didn't really know that going into it. And I just started like becoming friends with some people who were really into music. And then my boyfriend in college was super into like, you know, Saul Williams, like, like spoken word stuff and like, kind of like indie punky hip hop. That was all very like West Coast. And I started getting into UK grime. And I, I started, I think, really, again, maybe this is another way to distinguish myself. I was like, well, I'm like this weird, like, blonde girl who's, like, obsessed with rap now. Sure. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's a sort of alternative to, yeah. you're going against sort of what people might expect. Yeah. And that was the spirit in which I made, I started making music and then started playing shows on campus. Like, frat okay. parties, house parties. But you'd never had, a, like... like a, the need to perform before, but now you're in college and just, you're getting up and performing at frat parties. You're writing sort of original stuff. Like, where does that come from? Is it like something you saw and you go, I could do that. I know how that trick's done. Or is it like, I just kind of want to see if I can do it. Or is it like, I need to express, like, I guess I'm trying to figure out the the jump because, you know, we talk to so many artists and it's like, oh, you know, from when I was a kid, I'm, I'm watching so-and-so on stage or these concert films. And it's like, it's all I ever wanted. And it's an interesting thing to shift the way you have and be so good at it as well. Well, okay. I think it's really weird too. And I've I've thought about this and I think on some level, I feel like if I'm looking at my life as a book, I think it does get back to structure and that a part of me recognized early on that doing music would help me to like break free or something. Hmm. But that's like, I don't, I don't know if I was conscious of that, but I I sort of have to believe that somewhere in my mind that was operating. But for the most part, I actually think the whole thing stemmed from me being down. And this is a huge quality of me. Now, I know I said I didn't drink anything but water and orange juice, but in terms of like experiences, like I'm down. 
Like people, I'm known as like a person who you give me a call and like if I'm free and can do it, like I'll do it and I'll show up and like I'm down for the experience and I'll rally. Like even if I was in bed like the other night or this was like, oh, it wasn't the other night, it was a month ago. My friend, it was like 1230 and I was like in bed. I'd taken off my makeup. I was in my pajamas. I was reading a book. And my friend was like, hey, like I meant to text you earlier. I'm out tonight. I'm. And I knew I was leaving in two days. And I was like, I was like, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So I got up, you know, so I like having experiences. And I think I made, I started making these songs. And then this guy called me and was like, I heard you make songs and we're putting on a show. Would you play at it? Hmm. I was like, okay. (laughs) I mean, it's weird to look back on it. Yeah. Why was I so, I don't, I don't know. It's like I had the blind confidence of a moron, you know, but like I was so sincere at the same time. Like I wasn't, it wasn't like an arrogance thing. It was like, I was genuinely excited to do something new. So things start happening. Um, you're actually attached to Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons. He has a subsidiary label. Yes. So Dan has an imprint on Interscope. Dan is also, as I mean, Imagine Dragons is signed to an imprint on Interscope for somebody else. Um, And, but yeah, so I essentially, I was working out of this studio in Nashville uh, on songs that were going, you know, some of which are on my record and just kind of freeform, like working on stuff with a producer named JT, who is married to my friend. He's all, but he's also a musician and an amazing dude. And we kind of like just decided to like try this together and see if there was like good chemistry and because you were friends before you were collaborators. Exactly. But we weren't really even friends. Like we, we knew each other a little bit and like I knew his wife pretty well and like really like her. And so I figured we'd get along and everything, but we started working and it was just one of those immediate things where like, I think the studio space itself, cause it's out in this very like bucolic landscape. There's nothing around. It's next to a cemetery, which for me, because I sort of typically am surrounded by people was jarring, but I think creatively bountiful. Mm. And I started working on some songs, which got sent to Dan. Oh my gosh. We just got a delivery. <gasps> Why don't you say, say hello? Max literally just came into the studio yeah. for a second. I'm, I'm just producing the show right now. <laughs> Max just gave us... Oh, this is beer! <laughs> he just produced some steam whistles oh, for us. Oh, that was yeah, so nice. K-Play has a very demanding rider. I know, my rider. <laughs> <laughs> beer in a green bottle. This is such nice-looking beer. Yeah. I've never seen a steam whistle. They, they brew it right around the corner here in Toronto. Okay, I just took a sip of it, and it was delicious. There you go. Um, And I got an email from Dan being like, Hey, I'm Dan... I'm like in this band. <laughs> That's always the awkward thing, right? When you're kind of like in a big band or something, you're like, yeah, you one of the like biggest bands in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, but you, but he's such a humble. It's it comes from a very true place. He's a very like humble, sweet, generous dude. But so yeah, and we started skyping. He was on tour, and he was like, kind of told me his goals, which essentially were like, they were in the midst of working on their record but like at a very kind of chilled out pace and he wanted to be a part of another artist's career and give them a space, a safe space at a big label, which is effectively what occurred. Um, I, yeah, I, we got to talking more and more and I think just connected on a level of like values 
ethics. Like I met, I mean, his wife is a super talented musician as well, who's awesome. And like, they're just so generous and like good people. And was there any trepidation about making that jump? You know, uh, uh, like a major label artist, um, one of the biggest bands in the world. Are you going, ah, like, what does this mean for me? How does this change the creative? Is it how collaborative is it going to be? Or are you like, this is an amazing opportunity. Like I like the vibe I'm going for it. Pretty much this is amazing. I'm going for it. But I think the reason that I felt so secure in that feeling was because at the outset, Dan was like, I'm here for you as much as you want me to be. Like, if you want to play me every demo you have or only these 15 or if you want thoughts on like whatever you want, I'm here for like, I believe in you. Do your thing. And really meant that. And so, you know, then I met everybody at Interscope and they were great. And it's pretty much like the team that works on all the Dragon stuff works on my stuff. So it's like, it's all kind of connected in this nice way. Yeah, it's all in the family sort of deal. Yeah. And it just felt really natural. It's like kind of like when you meet somebody and you're like, oh, I really like, like romantically. And you're like, oh, I really like you. Just like want to hang out with you all the time. And then you're like, all your friends like them too. And yeah. you're just dating. Like that's kind of how this label relationship felt. As opposed to like, you know, scouring Tinder and just like hooking yeah. up with all the wrong people, getting drunk. Um, your style is a real amalgamation between like sort of alternative rock, hip hop, singer, songwriter, pop. Um, what records and acts have inspired your new album? Okay, so the new album, my number one inspiration is Yeah, 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 Show Your Bones. Okay. Which was always a favorite record of mine, but... I kind of revisited it. I think JT kind of put it back in my headspace because I love Karen O. And I think she's, in terms of like women I look up to in music, she's way, way, way at the top of the list. Like so unique, so herself, like wild and yet at the same time restrained. Like I don't even know. Yeah, it's interesting because she has these very like intimate projects that she's been a part of that are really quiet. Like I don't know if you ever heard that record of hers that was all demos she recorded when she was 27 she just put out like two years ago no it's so good and it was all just from her apartment so she's awesome another you know i think maybe i feel like weird because i talk about this album all the time and i'm kind of worried that like if she ever hears me hmm. she's gonna be like this person is a weird person but i'm not weird but this is a fascinating thought not to cut you off no totally but as your notoriety becomes more prominent, you become bigger and bigger, and, you know, these musicians are your peers. Is that something that becomes a consideration when you're doing interviews or you're talking about other artists? You're like, oh, shit, they're going to hear this. I might end up on a tour. I might, you know, we're going to cross paths. You know, that's actually a great question. It's never crossed my mind. Getting back to our intro, Max talking about, like, having some fear in reaching out to, like, me or anyone on the internet. I'm kind of like a dork when it comes to all that. Like, I'm just, I'm very open about what I like and who I like. And I'm not worried about the consequences of that. Right. But it is, but it is a weird thing because, so the the thing that I'm talking about, by the way, is I'm a huge metric fan, but I'm especially a fan of Emily Haynes' solo record. And I talk about this record all the time. It came out, like, when I was in college. Like, it's it's been out for a long time. But from a songwriting, like, lyrical standpoint, it's kind of like my point of ultimate inspiration. 
Wow. But this is, but that's why I feel like I say this all the time and I'm like, damn, like I'm, I'm undoubtedly I'll meet her at some point. And then is that, is that weird? No, but it's nice. Right. Because I think so. Like, think I'm not like has creepy. Be. No, I just like, you know, when you love a record, that's, I love that record. It's, I talked to, um, we had Kirk Hammett from Metallica mm-hmm. on and he was talking about sort of as things started happening for them and he'll be hanging out in a place and it's like, oh, there's Eddie Van Halen or so-and-so. And I was like, was it ever weird when it got to a point where like these people became your peers? Like you went from sort of like. Right. idolizing or being like, oh man, there's like Paul McCartney. And then like, you get in a room with Paul McCartney. You're like, oh wait, yeah, I'm in Metallica. And it's like, do you ever lose the feeling of sort of being a fan or do you eventually see them as peers? Wow. I think, and I can't say this because I am not in Metallica, <laughs> um, but my, in my limited experience, what I found is that my fandom doesn't change but my level of ease in that interaction changes. That's interesting. And I'm not really a nervous person uh, socially by nature, but or like a fangirly type person. And actually, this has been uh, one of the more difficult parts of my career is that I don't understand fandom in a typical sense because I wasn't a fan of anything as a kid. Right. Like my sister, she's going to hate me for saying this, was like obsessed with NSYNC. Okay, right? Like of like to the level of like boot, uh, got like bootleg Photoshop and like put her and her friends' faces in like photos with them. And like just like embarrassing. Right. I'm sorry, Lauren. Um, But, you know, she she had that phase, I think, that so many people have in their like teenage years where you become such a huge fan of something and it connects you to other people. Like that's the point. Like you fandom, bond over your fandom. Yeah. Fandom's right. like a conduit for friendship and, totally. and all these experiences, like a set of experiences. And I never had that. So even like I'm saying right now, like, Oh, I'm a fan of this Emily Haynes record or of like Karen. Oh, but if I met them, I wouldn't be like, <sighs> you know, um, I don't know. I'd be happy to meet them. Like, yeah, but not nervous or scared. The only person I think I would be nervous to meet Beyonce. Yeah. Some people transcend though. It's like, there's like kind of like, there's like musicians and people doing cool work. And then there's like superstars. Like it's almost like Beyonce is like a movie star. That's what I mean. She's, she is, well, she is a movie star. Yeah, indeed. But like, yeah, Beyonce, like Barack Obama, like I'm scared to meet these people. Like, yeah, Britney Spears, who I desperately hope to meet one day, by the way. (laughs) Right. I love I we, love Britney Spears. We almost had an in where Max and I were going to go to Vegas and interview her for the podcast. <gasps> there was like a, there was an email exchange with the management. Oh my God. Can you promise me that if you ever have an opportunity to meet her, you'll just let me know beforehand and maybe I can tag along. We'll make it happen. If it ever happens, you have my word. Okay. We'll reach out. It's, I've never told that story in the pod. It's a true, it's true. Thing. Wow. Yeah. That would, okay. Almost. Well, anyway, people like that, you're right, who have sort of transcended like, I'm an artist and they're just like these figures of like fame and culture. They, they they are the zeitgeist. Yeah. Like those people scare me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, or like I'd be scared to meet Kim Kardashian, 100%. Really? I would not know what the hell to say to her. I would be interested, like what's a normal conversation with Kim Kardashian right. like? Like what is, what are her fears? What does she, yeah. what does she care about? Well, and I've never seen the show, so maybe that would give me some insight into like yeah. what, I mean, then again, what is that show? I don't know. Right. But... Yeah, there are those certain people I'd be scared to meet. I guess this is all to say that 
another album that really inspired <laughs> me. That's where I was like, where the hell did I start? Um, I'm like a huge, huge fan of the last Vampire Weekend. Record. Oh, yeah. Like, again, I think he's such a good songwriter. Like, so Is Diane Young on that album? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that album was really good. It's actually. so good. And and so, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff, like, maybe some of that wildness, like, yeah, 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 wildness of, like, let's just, like, emote a thing and and do it with, like, zeal and fashion. And then looking to some, like, really lyrical-based stuff. That right. was very, because I really, I, I enjoy writing lyrics, and I feel like that's kind of the thing tying all, all my stuff together. Like, even if it's rap or it's, like super rocky well speaking of lyrics that it kind of brings us back around to blood in the cut mm-hmm. where'd the riff come is that you know and where's that like lyric from like it, kind of walk us through like deconstruct that song how does that song get built what's the idea from and, and sort of yeah just kind of bring us through how it comes to be okay well the song came to be i guess technically because i was really depressed and i was kind of like in this bad relationship romantic thing which i pretty much explain in the song yeah so it's pretty literal well right off the top you know you kind of get to a very vulnerable spot right away <laughs> you know with the he's probably yeah her it's like you get right to sort of the heart of anybody's fear insecurity i think in a situation like that yes um and this was we probably hadn't like had communication in like three weeks or something. And I was at home. It was over Christmas break. Like you're with your family and you, you kind of become this version of yourself that was a child a little bit. I find that always when I'm mm. with my parents and my family. And I was just that entire song. It's all, it's all true. And it's, it was all sort of that helplessness and just like being a f- loser. I just felt like such a loser. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like just those first lines, like this person I care about is like, doesn't care about me. He's probably like having sex with her right now. I don't have an apartment, which is true. I d- hadn't been living anywhere for over two years. Like I just felt like a complete loser. And I was like, so hung up on this situation. And I'm like, why am I? And I think, you know, I wrote the song in like 20 minutes. So it, there wasn't a ton of like, what am I trying to, there was no um, meta process got you you just let it spill out just let it spill out and i think but i think that's kind of why the chorus in a way like makes sense but doesn't make sense Mm. i think i just felt like i needed stuff like i wanted to be in a loud room where things were happening and i could be enveloped by a feeling that was different than this horrible feeling Hmm. when you come across blood in the cut specifically do you know it's like shit that's a good hook that's just a good turn of phrase like the hard consonants like the imagery the sort of like, do you feel you got something or was it just, again, part of sort of the process and it was just more other words you wrote down? Oh, I completely did not think it was like special at all. And I like I don't want to say I forgot about it, but I put it in the pile of like just stuff, like stuff I've been working on. And I played it for JT, this producer I've been did a bunch of stuff with. And he was like, this is good. We should like work on that one. Hmm. And, and then I was, and then I kind of went back and listened and I was like, oh yeah, I guess there's something kind of special about it, but I wrote it in such a dark period and I had been writing all these songs about this same situation where internally I just felt like I was like a broken record. 
um, so I think it was hard for me. It was, I needed someone outside of me to identify this song or this idea as different and possibly special. That it could stand out. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, that's why it's nice to, I think, really important to have either very trusted collaborators or a band or both or... Just fresh ears. Yeah. Because you don't, I mean, if you, yeah, it, I never would have thought that song would be successful. Right. Especially given the way I was feeling at that time. But then when I recorded it, I was like super like, that guy. I'm like in a better place. I'm good. So I was very, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was. It became I, empowering. It's, totally. And right. that's, I think, what's cool to me. What I'm happy about with the song is that I think it, you get both sides of that experience, right? Like the really, we've all, because I think almost all of us have been there where you just oh, feel. Oh man, I got dumped and lived on yogurt and water for like three months. <laughs> I like quit the band I was in because I was like, all the songs were about her. Oh God. But it's such a, I mean, God, it's, but I think what's funny too is as much as that feeling is just utterly devastating and, and so awful, there's something so sweet about it. There's nothing, there's nothing like being heartbroken. You know, you're alive. Totally. If you're feeling that low, you know, it's like when you're in it, it's like, I can't believe I can be this low. But when you start to pull out of the nosedive you know, it can't, it can't feel anything but good when you get that low. So, yeah. And I don't know, like I, sometimes I wonder about people that stay super even all the time and they don't have peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's better. I don't either. I think, I think it's kind of more annoying to vacillate, but speaking as someone who does, like I honestly feel like in in a single day i almost always go through the whole spectrum of mm -hmm. human emotions like this morning i woke up and i was like oh my god like my like like my these people that i know are like gonna die and like death is like what is that i mean i guess it's like before i was born so i won't know but like I won't even remember all of this. And like this book I'm reading, I'm not going to remember that. And then I like went to this panic and my heart started racing and I like went in the shower and tried to calm down. And then I chatted on the phone. I FaceTimed with my friend and then I got like in this great mood and I was laughing. Like, you know what I mean? And this is all, that was two hours of my day. Right. And like, and then I was anxious that I was late. <laughs> then I, <laughs> whatever. So it's just... I think I think feeling a lot of things is good for making music and making other art forms or being creative, but it, it takes a toll. I mean, it's like no wonder everyone's like drinking and on drugs. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to stay even. Totally. And not to, not to condone any of that, but I understand why people self medicate. Totally. It's, yeah. It's really difficult. Lastly, Maxi uh, wanted me to ask you this because you shared with us when we hung out last week uh, a hangover theory. Oh, yes. Which uh, blew Max's mind um, <laughs> because he can't handle his hangovers whatsoever. He's like a, a little baby when he's had a, a couple. Interesting that then you guys are called the champagne. Is it the champagne boys? That's correct. With a Z at the end. Uh, <laughs> we're not proud of it, but. Um, okay. So my theory about hangovers, which I really stand by, and I found a few adherents, uh, <laughs> though many, most people disagree with me, is that. I found that when I'm hungover, I don't have the mental ability to muster any kind of response that isn't just utterly authentic and utterly me and utterly honest and kind of open as a consequence. So I find like if I'm hungover, I'm like 
down to chat with people, like strangers. Like I'll walk up to the cashier and just be like, how are you doing today? You know, (laughs) (laughs) maybe I'm just feel more connected to like the struggle of being a human. And I've found that some, I've had some of like my greatest experiences, conversations. I've written some really, really good songs because it feels like I'm just me. There's no facade, no artifice. And yeah, like I don't even have the strength to pretend. <laughs> and I think there's like something beautiful in that. Now, if you're like barfing and stuff, of course, that's a whole another level. But I'm talking about like being out of it, like your brain's not working right, and like maybe you have a headache. You're a little foggy, so then you kind of tend to be more emotionally yeah. open because there's no defenses because you just maybe don't have the the uh, energy yeah. to have any of these sort of defenses that we normally have. Yeah, and I think maybe the other thing too, and this is part of the reason I like Germany is because I find that when I'm in Germany and I've talked to people who are like millennial age in Germany and there's this kind of like the 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 fog of regret and guilt as a nation that I think they have like you know they're now a full generation separate from World War II yep. but they know every it's not like I mean, everybody knows what oh, happened. Oh, they carry the, uh, that knowledge. Is, right. Yeah. And I think when I'm hungover because of my dad and because of all this other stuff, I have that same fog of regret and guilt. And it makes me like a more honest person. <laughs> I never realized that part before, but I think that's what it is, too. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Honestly, it's so much fun. really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, like I said, it was great hanging out with you the other night. Max and I were like, you got to come on. I know. Because uh, it was a great hang. And your awesome. show was amazing too. Thank you. And we're big fans of the song. And well, I'm fans of you guys. Looking and forward I'm, to the record. I'm I'm so happy you like do a, an amazing podcast. Oh, because thanks. you know I'm a I'm obsessed with podcasts. You're a pod person. I'm a pod person, and now I'm your pod person. All right, we'll have to have you back. Okay. Okay. Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the episode, the dessert here with uh, Max Kerman and our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. How's it going? Good. What do we want to talk about? The uh, the Pepsi commercial? <laughs> Lots <laughs> is going on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Pepsi recently came out with this commercial starring Kendall Jenner, uh, where it's a, I've, I'm sure you've seen it because everybody's seen it. It's all anybody's talking about um, as far as like pop culture entertainment. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world, but this is the thing that seems to have everybody sort of up in arms because essentially the commercial sort of appropriated uh, like protest culture and sort of used it to sell a product, uh, soda. What are your thoughts as our pop culture aficionado? This is, this is pop this culture is as it gets. Well, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, not offended by it. it it's, <laughs> I don't, well, why, the only thing offensive is kind of how dumb it was like in cheesy. And I, I did find it humorous. Like I was laughing a lot when, um, the girl wearing the headscarf, she gets mad cause she can't find a, a good enough photo that, that symbolizes <laughs> like, uh, what, what protests. Yeah. So she smashes her desk and clears everything off. And then, you know, as a, uh, commercial director, like that's you and I job. I, I know the situation that director's in, and sometimes ideas do get out of hand. And obviously one of the most popular ideas of all time, which uh, for commercial standards, was the Coke commercial. Like, I want to buy the world a Coke, where all people of all races and genders are getting together and singing that they want to buy a world of Coke. One of the most popular commercials of all time. Like, there, there's a lot, like, you know, there's a fine line with humor, but there's a fine line with sentimentality even more so, that people can, if it feels cheesy, people will really 
call you out on that. And, you know, there's a, a photo where a woman's like uh, that came out recently. She's presenting herself to be arrested by the police. And they basically emulated that with Kendall Jenner handing the coke. Right. So, you know, like we have meetings every like we have a meeting today, for instance, and we have to come up with ideas and there's a lot of pressure. And sometimes you just say ideas that sound good that actually aren't. And then the boss will be like, gold, write it up. And then you write it up. And before you know it, you're doing a commercial that you just said to like because you had to have an idea. Like, for instance, um, I was just supposed to uh, we were were supposed to come up ideas for a commercial. I won't say the name, but I was just scrambling for an idea. And at the last minute, I came up with an idea that sounded pretty good. And then I went to write it up. I was like, this is the shittiest idea. It's so <laughs> offensive to women. If, <laughs> if I actually have to shoot this, I'm going to be in big trouble. But I have to do it because I got to pay a mortgage, you know. So you can really see how it gets out of hand. And some things, you don't know they're horrible till you do it. You do the Pepsi commercial. You've spent $2 million or probably cost much more than that. And then it hits the airways. Well, what I would love to be there is like the fly on the wall in the room where like there's one person in, from Pepsi going, guys, I don't know if this is cool. And then there's the other person going, no, this is powerful. This is very important. <laughs> this is perfect. And then the other person's like, are you sure? Like we might get, you know, uh, no, this is great. Like, and that person who's defending it must feel like such a moral. Well, right and now. you deal with a client too. So maybe the idea started out very powerful, very emotional. But a client like Pepsi, they want to, like, dumb it down and make it less controversial. First of all, one day after this has all passed, I hope someone does an oral history on this from start to finish, meaning the guy that pitched it and wrote it to the director that had to execute it to after it was all done and cut and everybody's sitting in a room and they're going like – Wait, what is Kendall Jenner – like, what is she thinking through this whole process? Is there any part of her that's like, this is a terrible look? I don't know. When you're in it, it's hard to understand the big picture. I'm sure she got pitched like, no, we're going to have, like, this uh, Marley track. It's going to be so damn amazing. Like, it's people – protesting and everything because like think about all the commercials in the super bowl you know it was about unity and bringing this country together man it's like the country's divided and what this commercial is going to do it's going to show how it can like all come together and like you get swept up in it and then you see it and you're like this is the cheesiest execution Mm -hmm. i just i laughed out loud all the way through it how bad it was well just the protester signs like a protester sign being so generic just to say join the conversation (laughs) it's like (laughs) literally it's picking no side and peace symbols and oh my god and they were trying to hit everything like it was just so undeniably lame that it was comical. And the only way someone would be offended is just that they're, uh, it's insulting to our intelligence that we're going to accept Yes, that. I heard one tweet is like one theory is that this is actually a Coke ad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's been going on. Well, I think for a lot of people um, – it would have been embarrassing without the ending of her handing the coke and then sort of like stealing that iconic image of the woman presenting her hands to mm-hmm. be arrested during the Black Lives Matter movement. Um I think the ending is what made people angry. I think people would have just laughed at it until the ending. The ending was the best part. Everyone getting so excited, like they just solved <laughs> yeah! all the world problems. Yeah, it's like Israel-Palestine. We figured it yeah. out. Like- but it, every commercial is a fantasy, you know? So you can't slag it too much. You know, people are like, well, I'm never drinking Pepsi again. Like, I'm not drinking Pepsi just because it's too sweet, and I don't like Pepsi. <laughs> but if this was a Big Mac commercial, let's say, and they handed the guy a Big Mac, and he was eating the Big Mac, and it was very offensive, or I'd still eat Big Macs, like... Who, who's people always claim that they're not affected by advertising or whatever. And now yeah, it'd be interesting to see if Pepsi's sales spike or diminish. Well, they say their stock has gone down quite a bit. I think oh, people really? will stay away from Pepsi. I do. But if it was a Big Mac, like you're a huge Big Mac fan, right, Mike? Some things are supposed to remain secret. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> would you, 
Would you? Would there ever be anything that would offend you so much where you'd be like, "Well, Big Mac's off my list." There, there, there are if, things. If, if McDonald's came out like you know with some like racist campaign or something like that, or or it's like you found out that, like the owners of McDonald's were like against you know LGBTQ people, like then you'd be like, "Okay, that, yeah. that, that, that's See, what it turned happened. out that it was like corporate policy that McDonald's refused to high, hire anyone that's LGBTQ or of color. Like, say they had some sort of like secret mandate, I would absolutely stop What's eating the McDonald's. Chick Fil A, Chick Fil A. I just use the drive-through more. <laughs> no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. McDonald's. <laughs> well, yeah. no, it'd be hard because I yeah. do love McDonald's, but I, uh, on principle, I'd stop going. Yeah. It would break my no, heart. Th- that's a good point. Yeah, I, I guess I'd be forced to too, right? And, and want to also. I wonder um, if if the cops hadn't been in it, and Kendall Jenner wipes off her makeup and says like, F- "This, I'm not going to be an elite model. I am. I'm going to go be with the people." And then the commercial ended there, or something like that, or they mm-hmm. wrapped it up. Like that would have been fine. That would have been totally fine. I don't think that, it was just handing the. Pets. I think it was hand, this idea because I've seen all these like funny pictures of like the Martin Luther King march, and uh, and then, and Kendall Jenner arm in arm with the Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. There's so many great internet memes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think it was literally just like this idea. That's like really, and like a lot, a lot of the Black Lives Matter people were like, oh, I guess like in Ferguson, if I just handed the cops a Pepsi, everything exactly. would have been okay. So you do, you can't f- with that. The other yeah. stuff about like unity and bring people together, you can do that in an artful way. I can make people feel good. As you said, the Super Bowl commercials, there's a lot of that. And I thought it was like, hey, like if a corporation is going to spread a message, why not it be togetherness? All good. But you can't f- with. Yeah, like, they took a huge risk and it basically didn't pay off. Yeah. But it could it could have went over amazingly, and that's. I feel bad for Pepsi that they failed so publicly. But yeah. Uh, I had the, I didn't know we were going to talk about the Pepsi thing, but I did have something that actually was kind of interesting uh, about last week's conversation. Like I had a real life weird example of that when we were talking about um, men and women being alone together. Oh, sure. So uh, I was on the go bus and when I'm on the go bus, my every morning I have a mini uh, little panic that someone's going to sit next to me on the go bus. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't want that. It's, are you the same way? Oh, yeah. You want your own two seats. You, you want the window <laughs> seat. You want no one sitting beside you. And you want to have potentially your bag sitting beside you. You know, I'd, I'd go for the aisle seat because I don't care about the window. See, and then I bogart yeah, anybody I, going I hate that. people like you, okay. Max. Because yeah, <laughs> I always want to just make a mean face and, and look like don't sit next to me. But I'll never put like my good life bag on the seat next to me like, no, no, the seat's taken by my bag. Yeah. So I always shove my good life bag underneath my seat to give someone the option to sit next to me, yeah. even though that's, your scowl. Yeah. even though that's my nightmare and that's the last thing in the world I want. But it's respectful to leave the yeah. seat open. But when there isn't a seat open, like you know, sometimes there's always just uh, there's two seats on each side of the aisle, and sometimes every seat just has one person in it. So my fantasy is to go to a person who has a bag on the seat who really hates someone sitting next to them, pick it up and say, would you mind moving your bag? I'm going to sit here uh. just to f- with them. I've never had the guts to do it, <laughs> but my fantasy is that that's going to happen one day or I'm going to witness it happen just to see the other person's reaction. So I'm sitting on the bus and right in front of me is a redheaded girl. Uh, and she kind of looks like she could be uh, an actress and then walks in this man who looks like, uh, do you know who Paul Feig is? Yeah, of course. Uh, he's director, director. bridesmaids. He yeah. was actually a, he, he's an actor too. He played the science teacher on *Sabrina the Teenage Witch*. But he's older, like he's maybe early fifties, and he walks up and he goes right for this girl's seat. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit! She's got her bag there. What's going to happen? 
And he goes, would you mind moving your bag, please, so I could sit down? She goes, uh, go sit somewhere else. There's plenty of seats. And there, there are other seats. Mind you, all the other seats have a person there, but there's other seats that don't have a bag on the seat. Uh-huh. And he goes, no, there's not. She goes, go sit next to a man. Whoa. And he goes, like, he kind of reacts funny. He doesn't, he has, like, so many thoughts going through his head, but he kind of doesn't say it. He walks up the aisle. She's sitting kind of near the back of the bus where I always sit, and he starts walking to the middle. And then he thinks, no, I'm saying something. Comes back. He goes, it's, it's 20. And he forgets what year it is. And he's stumbling. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Like, and then he goes, it's 2017. And this is bullshit. And he starts yelling to everyone in the bus. He's like, sit next to a man? It's 2017. This is bullshit. And then she doesn't know what to do. And she goes, yeah, sit next to a man. And then he sits next to a man. But I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't sit next to me, right? Because I'm a man, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> who you talk to. Uh, not my wife. Uh, uh, but um, so at the end, I'm like, he's going to confront her when she's got to pass him. At the, at the end of the bus ride, you know, you got to get off yeah. and you're going to have another confrontation because she's going to have to go from the back of the bus to the middle. And he's really going to unload because he has the rest of the bus ride to think about what he's going to he's gonna say, which is ideal because anytime you <laughs> want to zip somebody, you always think about it afterwards. Like, oh, yeah, I would have said all this stuff. Yeah, the old jerk say. store. So, from so I, exactly. So I can tell. And she, it's funny you say jerk store like, like that Cassandra episode because she looked like the secretary who Costanza sleeps with, the redheaded secretary in that episode. <laughs> it's an obscure reference. If you know it, you know it. Look if you it up. Don't, you'll get you a visual don't. of this woman. So I'm looking forward to the end of, like, normally I sleep on the bus, but I'm just waiting for this moment at the end. This is bus seat. So bus stops. She boots it to the front, like, runs full speed, prestos it, door pops up before the bus has even came to a complete stop, and runs right beside the bus and just takes off, and she's gone. <laughs> And I just thought that was a really uh, weird, awesome, interesting thing that was kind of like our conversation. Yeah. I was wondering what you guys think of that. Like, did she – like, since he's a little older, is it predatory to just pick the girl? Is, is she in the right and the wrong? Because I thought she was a bit of a uh, you-know-what. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, it's like – to me, one, it's presumptuous to think that he's trying to sit beside you because – you know, he's he's attracted to you or something like that. Like that, like yeah, that's presumptuous. Maybe he likes to sit at the back of the bus, or maybe it's like once we start kind of like there's lots of seats, and I'm going to keep this seat for my bag. I, I think it's ridiculous. Well, and it's it's funny because I do prefer to sit beside like a tiny girl, not because they're hot, but because they're they tiny. Take up less space. Big guys take up a lot of room, and you're always touching them, and you're fighting for the armrest. So I would have targeted that girl too. But sometimes I don't sit beside a woman. Merely because I feel like the woman thinks I'm a predator or something. And you know, I, I've been there too. Absolutely. Like, I, I, I don't, don't want to pass. put a woman in a weird position, so I'll just sit next to a dude. She also totally publicly embarrassed him and made him feel like a predator. Yeah, I know, which isn't cool on her part. What is funny is the one time where a girl targeted me and sat beside me. It's the only time it's ever happened, but she hit on me the entire time. It wouldn't stop. And I was being harassed, ironically. And that woman became your wife. <laughs> she did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. You can find Mike on Much Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Mike on Much. Please you, uh, leave a comment and rating in iTunes. Share this with your friends. We really appreciate your support. We love all the tweets. We see them. It warms our heart. Thank you very much. Mike on Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I am your host, Mike Veerman. Thanks to Shane, as always. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.